0: There's something about the supper itself that um, um, is not just an arbitrary sign, but actually seals us with um, the direction that the Spirit is taking us, namely to conform us to the image of Christ. Um, There's something about the celebration itself, the way it holds together Christ's death and resurrection again, coming again, that actually characterizes Jesus and should, should characterize our um, preaching as, as well.
1: Does doctrine really matter? The Apostle Paul once wrote to a young pastor named Titus, instructing him to hold firm to the trustworthy word he was taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine. Welcome to Credo Podcast. Where Doctrine Matters and Theological Ideas Have Consequences. Here's your host, Dr. Matthew Barrett, Executive Editor of Credo Magazine, and Associate Professor of Christian Theology at Midwestern Seminary.
2: Welcome to the Credo Podcast, Where Doctrine Matters. This is Matthew Barrett, your host, and I am looking forward uh, to really talking about one of the more practical aspects of ministry in the church, but one that is not at all absent of rich theological content, and that is the Lord's Supper. The evangelical church today has really a strange relationship with the Lord's Supper. For some, the Lord's Supper rarely makes an appearance. For others, when the Lord's Supper does appear, it is tacked on to the end of the service Others do incorporate the Lord's Supper regularly, but they approach the table with little explanation as to what this meal means. More common still are those churches which treat the Lord's Supper as merely a remembrance so that the table is a memorial with little present or future benefit. And so to participate in the Lord's Supper at other churches, is to know only, say, self-examination or somber reflection, but little joy in a risen and present Savior. Could it be the case that we've actually left out some important facets and aspects to this meal? What if we've been eating this meal in a way that cuts the Lord's Supper short? Could it be that the Lord's Supper, for example, is not merely an opportunity to remember that our sins have been forgiven? but to also celebrate the new life we have in Jesus Christ. And if so, could it be true that the Lord's Supper is also about the present communion we have with Christ, as well as our anticipation and even our hope for that future banqueting table with Christ and the new heaven and earth? Well, I'm delighted to have with me today uh, Todd Billings, who is a professor of Reformed Theology at Western Theological Seminary. He's been there since 2005, but he's also the author of a number of books, some of which you may already be familiar with. Uh, Two that will be central to our discussion uh, today are Calvin, Participation and Gift The Activity of Believers in Union with Christ, as well as his more recent book, Remembrance, Communion, and Hope Rediscovering the Gospel at the Lord's Table. Of course, there's many other books uh, that, that you should be familiar with, including uh, The Word of God for the People of God. He's also written a book called Union with Christ, reframing theology and ministry for the church. And much of his, uh, his recent writings on the Lord's Supper stem out of uh, his, his previous work on union with Christ. And he's also written a book called Rejoicing in Laments, uh, wrestling with incurable cancer and life in Christ Todd thank you for joining us today on the credo podcast
0: it's great to be with you Matthew
2: let me just uh, start on a more personal note especially with that last book that I mentioned rejoicing and lament Re- wrestling with incurable cancer and life in Christ I think that those who have who've been following your books those who have been uh, reading them, uh, maybe also familiar with the fact that uh, you have an ongoing—you um, call it wrestling here. We maybe we could say the word battle, battle with uh, incurable cancer. Uh, maybe you, you could just comment for a minute as to maybe an update or uh, how you are managing uh, to to wrestle with this incurable cancer. Uh, in light of uh, your ongoing responsib- teaching and, and ministry responsibilities.
0: Yeah, I'd be happy to give an update. I um, was diagnosed um, almost six years ago now and underwent pretty intensive treatment for a year and had to take off from teaching, was in the hospital for um, about a month and then about about three months of quarantine um, and since that time I've had to continue on chemotherapy but on a little bit um, lower dose so I still have some um, symptoms from the chemotherapy but um, yeah thank God I've been given life and breath and um, I'm tested every three months um, to see my cancer levels um, and while they can still clearly see the cancer there, um, the levels have remained relatively low. So um, in the meantime, I've been able to continue um, some teaching and writing. At, um, this book, Remembrance, Communion, and Hope, was one I started about a decade ago, actually, and was working on when I was diagnosed. In fact, I had a draft of it in my hand a draft of a chapter in my hand that I was marking and correcting grammar errors and things like that when the doctor came in and told me about the cancer, which I wasn't expecting. Um, But um, I put that on the shelf um, while I wrote the book on lament. A lot of that was written actually during my quarantine time Um, and then was gradually able to come back to it and Especially the last three chapters were written um, post-diagnosis um, and in the midst of treatment. So, um, yeah, I give—I don't know the future. My prognosis has not changed um, about in terms of the future, but um, I give thanks to God for life and breath. So,
2: well, we we sure are thankful uh, for the The writing you've done uh even since then and and the fact that you've been able to continue to do so, which i just find amazing um and uh it's it's certainly the case that i i think uh just your writing and I'm sure this is the case with your teaching as well it's it's a great testimony and witness uh to other christians who may or may not be struggling with cancer, but regardless, uh, it it's a great testimony to them as to what perseverance looks like, what trust in Christ looks like as well. Um, and uh, you, you are definitely being prayed for um, by others. So I hope that, that you find that encouraging in some way. Uh, you know, this, it, it's interesting that you, I was not aware that uh, this is a, a book that you wrote. Uh, here I'm referring to to your recent book, Remembrance, Communion, and Hope. Uh, I was not aware that this was a book that you started some time ago uh, when when this news about cancer uh, was given to you and was, was sort of put on the shelf for a while. But uh, I am I'm certainly glad that you were able to return to it in time, and perhaps the book is better. Uh, because of it, I don't know, but uh, maybe the best way to approach this topic of the Lord's Supper, especially the way you uh, you handle it there, is is just to, to to understand. I think for our listeners that it really is a topic that is misunderstood in the church today. Uh, it's one I found myself coming coming into this book in particular and thinking. Uh, I think many will be surprised at. Uh, how much they don't know coming into the book, uh, thinking, okay, I have a grasp of the Lord's Supper, but but then when they, you walk away from from this work, you realize, actually, there is so much more that I need to understand. I think it's very common, and perhaps it's a common experience in the evangelical church today, that the Lord's Supper is really presented more as a, a remembrance, or maybe sometimes strictly as a remembrance of Christ's death. For the forgiveness of our sins. And that is a wonderful aspect of the supper. Uh, but uh, you raised the question of, well, is there is there more? Uh, this is a crucial aspect, but but you've argued, well, if we're if we're limiting ourselves to remembrance, are we going to then miss out on other benefits that the Lord's Supper is meant to to symbolize, to signify, and even to convey, such as say, present communion with Christ as well as anticipation of that eschatological banquet to come. Uh, maybe you can comment just on, on this maybe correction, we could call it. Uh, do you think limiting the Lord's Supper to remembrance or merely just forgiveness, does that actually reflect a truncated view of the gospel that, that we may be coming to the table with?
0: I think it. I think it does reflect that. And often, when people, um, when we Protestants think about the Lord's Supper, we do so in fairly small terms in terms of like, okay, well, you know, how should it be done? Um, what is our basic approach to the Lord's Supper? Are we, you know, Lutheran or Zwinglian? Or, you know, we think in these categories and we want to just sort of make sure that we're obeying the Lord's command to celebrate, which we should do. Um, But I think that when you take a step back and see some of the larger picture, there's actually problems, particularly in Western Christianity, um, in incorporating certain biblical themes that are central to the gospel itself into worship and the Christian life. And those often happen to be the same problems that are truncated in our practice of the Lord's Supper. So I first came to this when I was um, working on the theme of union with Christ and um, thinking about um, its implications for congregational ministry. And in so many places, there's an emphasis upon forgiveness of sins um, um, and a kind of perhaps a ticket to heaven, make sure that you're saved, um, and then the idea of sanctification is something that either we do ourselves, or it's just kind of an op- optional extra for super-Christians or something like that. Um, and some of what I found remarkable early on was how um, with Calvin and um, Reformed Confessions, like the Belgian Confession, um, there's we're united to Christ by the Spirit, and we receive two inseparable gifts. Of forgiveness and new life, both of them are gifts, um, and this has really big implications for congregations, and it also has implications for um, um, the Lord's Supper. What I had, what I did for quite a few years was I had students um, in my class take surveys on what is your view of the gospel, and what. Um, what common descriptions of good news would you get in the church that you're working in and the church that you're interning in or that you grew up in? And then what's your view of um, the Lord's table? And not always, but very often, they were in parallel. So um, the Lord's Supper was often celebrated, fairly. Really. Frequently, um, it was the emphasis was almost exclusively upon self-examination and individual piety. When you celebrate, there's very somber music. People close their eyes. They, you know, replay um, the crucifixion scene from a Jesus movie in their mind. They don't really want other people there. <laughs> um, you, you get the sense. Um, And and it's it's this sort of a very meaningful sober recall, but um, a a remembrance um, uh, in that sense. And then in those contexts, when you bring up the notion that, well, perhaps there's a celebratory aspect of the Lord's Supper, or perhaps it should be celebrated more frequently, um, the objection is, um, frequently, that it would make it so that it's not special, and also mm-hmm. it can be just seem offensive. You know, how could this be celebratory if you know what it's about is how we were saved, namely how we were given forgiveness of sins through the cross. Now, on the other side, I um, also outline in the book how in some congregations. Um, particularly in some mainline congregations, do have the opposite problem, where um, I remember one person coming to me and saying, "Yeah, you know, we celebrate the Lord's Supper every week, but we don't. Our congregation doesn't really like to talk about Jesus at the Lord's Supper."
2: How ironic! Um,
0: it's just, <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's it's just all it's just about how all of us are included,
2: uh-huh. right?
0: Um, and so this is this is highly problematic as well. Um, and I'm not, I'm, I never make the claim in the book that if you move toward a more frequent celebration of the Supper, if you're a congregation that celebrates quarterly and you move toward weekly, that there's going to be this automatic, magical change in the congregation. But I do make the claim that a renewed theology and practice of the Lord's Supper can be a way for congregations, to embrace the gospel more deeply, to embrace the good news that we've not only been given um, forgiveness of sins through the cross, but we've been given new life through the Spirit, the good news that Christ has died for us, and yet Christ is um, alive and present to us by the Spirit, and that we live in hope and anticipation and longing and aching for the age to come where Christ will come again in glory. And all of those come together inseparably um, in the supper and in, in a healthy, um, um, what I call functional theology, um, in other words, the theology that our lives tell, in a fun- um, healthy, functional theology of good news, all of those things will be incorporated as well.
2: You know, I find it interesting that you've mentioned the Lord's Supper is not just about forgiveness, it's also about new life in Christ. And, and I think that if that's not there, then it then you're right, it does become difficult in the context of the of of celebrating the, the supper to to actually celebrate it. Uh I I suppose yeah. you, you could yeah. argue and there is a celebratory aspect to remembering forgiveness, Ooh. and that's certainly true. Uh-huh. But but it's it's almost as if uh, we we're missing the flip side of the coin, which is if we have been forgiven, then we also have the righteousness of Christ imputed to us. We we've mm-hmm. uh, and and that leads us to the work of you know everything the Spirit's done, uh, applying what Christ has purchased from regeneration to justification, to adoption, to sanctification. There's just yeah, so yeah. much more uh, yeah. that, that we miss out on. It, it I think it is a reminder that, uh, yes, we're talking about the Lord's Supper, but we're also talking about a major presupposition, which is the gospel itself, and we need to maybe take a step back in our congregations and ask, well, are we articulating all of the gospel, or are we articulating all the implications of the gospel? And, and maybe the Lord's Supper is a test case in which, well, if we're honest with ourselves, maybe we haven't been doing that as, as well as as we should. Um, now, of course, I think you know the elephant in the room needs to be addressed, right? Uh, the, the really basic to any conversation about the Lord's Supper are those debates over well, how exactly is Christ present and and of course you know Protestants uh, have have agreed since the Reformation well I, here I'm painting with a broad brush but uh, th- mm-hmm. they've they've had agreement over uh, a rejection of Rome's view transubstantiation as that which is inconsistent with scripture, but they're not necessarily unified uh, it, with exactly how Christ uh, how his presence should be understood. So, for some of our listeners, they they may not be entirely sure as to to how Christ, how his presence is manifested, or if it is manifested at all. So, I think it might be helpful just at the start of this conversation, to to maybe lay give a lay of the land here as to the major positions on Christ pre, on, on the presence of Christ. Uh, but but perhaps you can. Uh, lead us to what you believe is the most biblical understanding, and really a, a theological understanding of the supper. So let's just walk through some of these, and I'm just going to throw them out there, and and you you can comment. Uh, first, let's you've mentioned it already, but the memorial view typically is tied to Zwingli, though there's others, many others since then, and and maybe it's hard to prove things to st- statistically, but perhaps this view may be the most common view just when you look at evangelicalism at large?
0: Yeah, I think that um, um, a roughly Zwinglian view is the most common, at least, um, um, American evangelical view. Um, um, the It's interesting, when I first started this book, I started with these, with these, Um, categories about how Christ is present. And then um, I took a step back once again and um, realized that I wanted to um, frame things a little bit differently before I got to those classic debates. So um, I actually start the book with um, Augustine and Augustinian anthropology, where we, um, our creatures, created to delight in God's word, um, that which we receive in community, in preaching, in sacraments, and um, you have different ways in which this is, in in, in which this is developed, then um, among Protestants. But getting some of the sort of big picture um, um, dynamics, um, and then. When we come to those categories, um, I think that there's a value to having kind of shorthand for some of the different views. But there's also a fair amount of fluidity, um, especially with the um, decline of denominational allegiance in a lot of quarters. So for example, um, while a memorialist view would be the most common, I think, among American evangelicals, you have an increasing number of um, Pentecostals, both in um, America and globally, who are wanting to retrieve um, a higher sacramental theology. And one of the things I know in the book is that they're pretty unlikely to end up with anything like Luther or you know, a Roman Catholic view, um, generally, when they aim toward a higher um, view of whether they call it the sacraments or the ordinance of, of the Lord's Supper, they end up with something similar to Calvin that um, Christ is made present to us um, by the Spirit in the overall celebration, that you shouldn't be fixating on the bread and the cup themselves, that there's no magical moment. Um, um, where, you know, the bread and cup are um, trans- transformed, um, and yet it's more than a simple remembrance. And then there's a long Baptist tradition um, of this, um, of especially you see this in Spurgeon, who basically, as far as I can tell, you, you may know more about Spurgeon than me, but as far as I can tell, Spurgeon basically adopts um, Calvin's view, an adaptation of Calvin's view of, of supper. So um, I think that one of the key questions here is, um, comes up with, in the first generation of the Reformation with Zwingli, and that is, does the spirit use material instruments, physical instruments? Um, Zwingli said um, no. Um, the Spirit doesn't need instruments, doesn't use instruments, and so any um, language about um, a means of grace um, besides besides the receiving of preaching um, or like a physical um, sign through baptism or um, the Lord's Supper, um, instruments that God uses, Lewis, um, excuse me, Zwingli was just quite allergic to that language. Um, now, interestingly, I'm part of a tradition that has um, historically Dutch Reformed tradition, so we have some confessions that are influenced by Zwingli. But that strong denial of um, God's use of physical instruments doesn't make it into any of the Reformed confessions. Um, But um, there's still that that strand on the Zwinglian side. Um, And then you have... Um, different, a different view of the Spirit, certainly with Calvin, where the Spirit works in and through the community, in and through the whole Supper, so that there is this um, koinonia, fellowship with Christ, and fellowship with one another that is simultaneous at the Supper. And he um, works a lot with First um, Corinthians 10, especially verse um, 16 and 17 there in developing that. Um, But he also has a particular conviction about the Spirit and that the Spirit of God tends to work with people and indwells people and attaches himself to people and not just to things. Um, And this is important because with uh, the... The Roman Catholic view of transubstantiation. Um, one of the one of the terms that was used is that the body of Christ is um, contained um, in the elements, um, and so this really worried um, Calvin. Um, both that it it wasn't simply that. The mass became an act of merit. That's certainly a big problem for Calvin. But also that we kind of get in control of physical things. <laughs> that we can claim control over over God <laughs> in, in a certain sense, mm-hmm. where you know we start fixating upon um, the elements and what happens to the elements after supper and so forth. Um, when he thinks that actual koinonia takes place with Christ and with one another in the in the overall celebration and with other embodied people, that's that's why in the um, Reformed and Presbyterian tradition the whole idea of private communion has been frowned upon. So, if you go and give communion to someone who's sick in the hospital, you're supposed to have at least one other elder there in most Reformed polities, so that there's at least someone that you're having koinonia with or fellowship with. Um, And the Lutheran view um, is kind of a middle position between Calvin and Rome, I think, um, where there is a sense that um, there is what's often called a local presence or a localized presence of Christ um, connected to the elements. Um, And this, you know, This this worried Calvin, Um, um, and he was Calvin was able to sign on to the Lutheran view of the Lord's Supper when that wasn't included. Um, um, There was a revised version of the Augsburg Confession that Calvin signed on to and never renounced, and it was the the difference was just a slightly different wording um, about the elements and one that. Um, didn't imply um, a local or localized presence. Um, so I think that a lot of it depends upon your view of the spirit with these big picture things. Does the spirit use physical instruments, with such as with the sign action of the Lord's Supper or of, of baptism, um, and does the spirit actually? Inhabit objects or inhabit um, only people. Um, I mean, a Lutheran would say the spirit certainly inhabits people, but also um, is um, is is in with and under. So localized language, um, the bread and the cup. Is that is that helpful, all in terms of some of the? That's at least how I tend to approach some of the broader stake issues
2: there. Yeah, I really think it is. Uh, sometimes when we approach these debates or views over the Lord's Supper, uh, we tend to think uh, only in time, uh, only in terms of you know the wording Jesus used, uh, and certainly when we look back at the Reformation debates between Luther and Zwingli, for example, uh, you, you have this picture in which Luther is you know, insisting on, on those words because he... He does see this as a localized presence. We've been talking to Todd Billings, but let's take a short break to hear from one of our sponsors.
0: Midwestern Seminary's Doctor of Ministry degree program is your next step in training for local ministry. The Doctor of Ministry program at Midwestern Seminary is designed to equip and train leaders with a commitment to the local church. With multiple emphases available, including counseling, church revitalization, expository preaching, leadership, and missions, among others... Your program provides the equipping you need in practical theology for direct church work and ministry leadership. And because all of our doctoral programs are modular, you don't have to leave your current ministry to pursue your degree. For more information, visit mbts.edu today. That's mbts.edu.
2: We're back from our break, and we're ready to jump into our conversation with Todd Billings about the Lord's Table. I like how you framed this because... uh, Really, it's a pneumatology, uh, not just a a christology, that's at stake here. Uh, So that when we talk about the the presence of Christ, we're actually having a debate over the role of the Holy Spirit, and we see that come through. I, I think you see it even in your own description just now, as to say the difference between Calvin who understands Christ present by the Holy Spirit, and, and like you've said, there's this horizontal dimension in which there's fellowship uh, that's to take place uh, in that moment and as a result of, of, that, of the Holy Spirit's work. That's different, though, than, say, the way Zwingli is precluding the Holy Spirit working through instruments, or, or Luther, for example, uh, understands a localized presence, um, a presence in, with, and under the elements themselves, that's a very different <laughs> understanding of presence and spirit entirely. You know, I think one of the one of the better, you've mentioned uh, some of the reformed confessions, I, I like how you've stressed that these reformed confessions, and, and we'll come back to this point, how these reformed confessions and statements and even catechisms really, uh, make much of the communal nature, not, not just our communion with Christ, for example, but also horizontally <coughs> our fellowship with one another. Uh, but these, you know, take take, for example, the Belgic Confession. Uh, not only do they stress that corporate aspect, which I want to talk about, but they also use this language of sign and seal. So let me just read for a minute here. This is the Belgic Confession. And it says, God has ordained sacraments for us to seal his promises in us, to pledge goodwill and grace toward us, and also to nourish and sustain our faith. God has added these to the word of the gospel to represent better to our external senses both what God enables us to understand by the word and what he does inwardly in our hearts, confirming in us the salvation he imparts to us. What a great statement. As I, I could be challenged on this. P- perhaps there's a better statement on the Lord's Supper. I don't know. But I would think that that statement right there, it just captures the many facets uh, of the Lord's Supper that are so often missing today. Let's talk for a minute, though, about this language of sign and seal, because I know when this language is used... Uh, Protestants start to get very nervous, uh, maybe worried that, well, are we are we going back to Rome with with language of of seal? What do these two words intend to capture? How how is God's as the Belgic Confession says? How, how's God's promise confirmed through this covenantal meal? How how does the sealing take place?
0: Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I think the first thing to Recognize is to unpack even one of the terms that you just used, that these are covenantal terms. And I think it's actually a real richness of the Reformed tradition that it can bring to the broader ecumenical table to um, um, think of all of this in terms of um, God's covenant. When we're talking about, well, what is an instrument of grace? What is the means of grace? What are the broader categories under which we should understand, like, baptism and the Lord's Supper? Um, You can very quickly get to notions that sound to many Protestants like magic, or like we are, you know, in control, and that may be some of the worry about the the term sealed, as if, like, um, there's, uh, once God has Sort of sealed something, then you can do what do with it, what you want.
2: Manipulate <laughs> um, it.
0: Manipulate it. It um, gives um, too much power to the person who to, to, to a prayer of consecration to you know to the minister. Um, um, it could easily be um, people could worry that it could turn it into an act of merit. Um, but all those, all those. Worries, I think, are ameliorated when you keep in mind that these are um, covenantal terms, um, and so um, these are—it's—it's it's a sign. In other words, it's a physical sign with a signified. Um, and the Belgian Confession, as well as other Reformed confessions, are very clear that you know that the sign itself is. Um, actually, the whole physical act of the community um, celebrating—not simply the elements—but it, it involves, you know, our bodily physical um, world in, in this sign act. Um, but the signified um, is um, Jesus Christ. He is the substance um, of the sign of, of the Lord's Supper. Um, and then I think sealed is a term that you're just—it's it, it, like a intimate covenantal marking that um, this is not simply a sign that is completely arbitrary in relation to um, what it points to. In other words, you know, like you have a um, really bland black and white sign that says the Grand Canyon this way— mm-hmm. um, it's it's a sign that actually bears the mark of the one who is um, signified. Um, that every time we celebrate the Lord's Supper um, in the sign action of the supper itself, um, it testifies to Jesus Christ. Um, it bears His mark, and it's, in a sense, um, through the Spirit, we enter into that character. So um, I recall times where there's been a service, a a worship service, and there's no mention of Christ's death or Christ's resurrection um, until then they celebrate the Lord's Supper, and there you get it all. You get it all there. (laughs) Um, And I'm not at all using this to justify poor preaching, but there's something about the supper itself that um, um, is not just an arbitrary sign but actually seals us with um, the direction that the Spirit is taking us, namely to conform us to the image of Christ. Um, There's something about the celebration itself, the way it holds together Christ's death and resurrection and coming uh, coming again that actually characterizes Jesus and should should characterize our um, preaching as as well.
2: I like the language of conforming to the image of Christ. It also reminds us then that, if that's the case, then it re- really reminds us that, well, the Lord's Supper uh, is a, a means, we could say a means of grace, it's also a means in our Christian life to persevere. The, the language that the belgic confession uses i think is just on target where it talks about our faith being nourished uh being fed uh there the metaphor is Mm -hmm. is very fitting um of of course here there's a little bit of attention though isn't there uh maybe not so much once we understand it but at first glance there could be attention because on the one hand there's faith, uh, the, the believer's faith is to be present, it's to play a, a role in the reception of this sign and seal, and if it's going to be nourished, if it's going to be fed, uh, if, if the, this means of grace is actually going to, to manifest itself in the believer's life, but at the same time, wouldn't you also say it's first—the the Lord's Supper, the table, is first and foremost a gift— uh, so talk about this tension for a minute. How, how is it the case that, well, on the one hand, it's a gift that is given to us, given to the Church, not to just us individually, of course, but then at the same time, our faith actually has a role in the reception of, of this gift.
0: Yeah. I think that sometimes when people hear the phrase um, means of grace, and I've heard it talked about sometimes in just popular discussions, um, people um, assume, well, that means, like, if you're not receiving the Lord's Supper, then you can't be saved, you know, if you believe that the Lord's Supper is a means of grace. Um, or um, um, or when they hear the language of faith, um, they think, oh, well, faith is my part. That's, you know, God's done his part. I need to do my part, which is bring faith to the table. Um, For for the theological conception I'm giving here, drawing upon the Reformed tradition, you kind of have to unthink both of those. (laughs) Um, And again, some of it actually comes from the covenantal dynamic. um, Because the Lord's Supper, um, um, for Calvin in particular, but you see this in and Reformed confessions and similar, you know, like I've mentioned, to Spurgeon and a number of other authors in this broader tradition. Um, the Lord's Supper is, first and foremost, a gift. Um, it's the gift of Jesus Christ, um, received through the means of grace, namely the divine action of, of the Supper. And, um, that means that it's not simply an act of obedience. Um, an act of obedience is a good thing, um, but it's not a gift. <laughs> um, uh, but it also means that um, if this is a covenantal framework, this is the means of grace. Is the question should not be, "Can you save, be saved, you know, with or without this?" Like, if grace is um, pipeline coming to you that if you don't take the Lord's Supper, you don't get a pipeline or or something like that. Um, We shouldn't be looking for like a lowest common denominator (laughs) as Christians. But this is actually a gift that God has given us um, for our sustaining, um, um, for the growth in our life in Christ um, by Spirit. Um, And so the means of grace is not automatic, because... The God's promise, God's covenantal promise, um, is properly received um, as a gift in trust in faith. But even that faith is not our own accomplishment. It's something that we give thanks to God for. We don't congratulate ourselves, you know, saying, "Yes, I have faith," and so I get to, (laughs) you know, have this. Um, gift now of the Lord's Supper and, you know, my friend down the street, he doesn't have faith, and so, you know, he's not good enough to get this gift of Supper. That's not... Faith is more like giving up. <laughs> it's more like, you know, Christ, I have no hope but you. Mm. All of my self-justifying efforts are just not enough. Yeah. And so, Christ, I need to feed upon you. Um, um, with your people in word and in sacrament. Hmm. Um, and so, um, yeah, I don't know if that, that helps them, but I think actually some of the covenantal character gives us a way to reconceive of it so that it's not just automatic mm-hmm. or magical on the one hand. But on the other hand, it's not simply... Um, a testimony to our own faith, or a testimony to our act of obedience. Um, I mean, it's not less than that, but that's not in the Reformed tradition. That's never what it signified. What it signified is Jesus Christ Himself, um, who is the good news, who we access by the Spirit um, in union.
2: Yeah, I like the language that you've used before about how our faith is its nourished, it's fed by the supper rather than merely, say, testified through the supper. And that may <laughs> seem like a, a small distinction, uh, but actually it's a significant one because it, it does make the difference uh, for, for a church uh, as to whether they're actually going to receive the supper in, in all of its glory, and all of its benefit, and come to the table, like you've mentioned, with the right type of humility, understanding that, okay, yes, faith is—I'm is, is I'm, I'm receiving this, but I'm receiving this as, as a gift, and my faith itself is a gift. And I like what you've said about faith as giving, giving up. I mean, this conveys, doesn't it, that uh, when we—we Approach the cross and the table that we are coming. Well, as Luther said, uh, we 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 may disagree with Luther's view of the supper, but he certainly was right when he said we're we're coming as beggars. Um, there's yeah, a, there's yeah. a certain trust and grace alone um, that that kicks against works righteousness, but at the same time, um, can can really. Kick against uh, treating the supper in in that type of magical way that you've warned against as well. <laughs> well, so so far, I mean, we've talked a lot about remembrance and then communion with Christ, especially uh, given Calvin's view uh, of of true participation. And you've mentioned Charles Spurgeon. I think I think that's perceptive as well. Calvin or Spurgeon and many others, their view of true participation in Christ by the Holy Spirit and how that results in. And present communion, not just with Christ but with one another. But there's also an eschatological aspect to the supper that I think is rarely, if ever, talked about. Maybe by theologians some, but definitely not so much on on a Sunday morning. We tend to think that you know eschatology is is this is this future reality has little to nothing to do with uh, the supper. We should keep in mind, though, that. Uh, there is this already not yet component even to eschatology itself. So, when we come to the table, if that component should be present, uh, if Christ is ascended to heaven as our king, as our priest, especially, then, well, in what ways do you think, Todd, uh, this, this, the supper captures then this already not yet uh, reality that is? Really common to how we view eschatology as a whole, but but maybe is sorry for the pun, but is most present when we come to the table.
0: Yeah, yeah. This this theme really excited me as I was reading, and it's probably the chapter that was probably the most influenced by my cancer
1: story. Mm-hmm.
0: I don't talk at all about myself and the cancer story in the midst of it, but um, these questions became especially Real for me, writing um, um, this this as a cancer patient, and it's I think something really powerful, um, both in our celebration of the supper and of our whole view of of the Christian life. Um, I mean, biblically speaking, um, there's already indications that the Lord's supper is to be celebrated um, in hope. Um, Paul says um, until Christ comes. Um, until this coming day of the Lord, you're to look forward to this day in the Lord, and, you know, to Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus. Mm. Um, this, this aching, this hope um, for the day of the Lord. And, of course, the feasting imagery is um, um, central to much of the biblical witness, but, but clearly central to um, the vision of the aged come. Um, in the Book of Revelation, and um, and so there's this sense of a foretaste of the delight um, of this feast to come, a foretaste of of the adoration of Christ when all knees will um, bow uh, before before Jesus Christ, um, and there's this sense in which. Um, Having the Lord's Supper as a foretaste, it kind of it reminds us of where we are, of what time it is, that we live between the first and the second Advent, that um, Christ has come, and Christ is coming again, and we um, live in that hope, um, and it's a reality, um, and yet it's not yet fully here. Um, one thing I one thing I found as I as I wrote about this and as I discussed this with um, students and pastors and so forth was that there are a lot of um, fairly bizarre um, ideas about um, heaven and the age to come that are just commonplace in the church. So if you go to um, Barnes and Noble or another bookstore, you know one of the most common um, books that you will see are things about near-death experiences, and um, you know, little snippets into um, they would say into heaven. Um, heaven is for real, and and things like that. And there's a lot of there's actually a lot of interest among lay people and in congregations um, in the life to come. Um, but right here in the Lord's Supper, we actually have a much more biblical um, kind of sign of the kingdom to come. Um, it's embodied. Um, oftentimes these popular Christian conceptions aren't particularly embodied. It's not unusual to hear people talk about, yeah, my wife who died is an angel now, and you know, things like that. Um, it's communal, it's not about going off and playing golf by yourself all day, or (laughs) it's not about wish fulfillment. Um, It's centered on Jesus Christ and um, the the adoration of Jesus Christ as the true King and the true Lord. Well, all of those things are present um, at the table. Um, It involves reconciliation, um, people from all tribes and nations, Um, um, This is something that we need to seek to um, celebrate and anticipate in our congregations, people of different races, people, you know, with disabilities, um, and and, and so forth. And I give some congregational snapshots um, that, you know, display some of how this can be tied in with the supper. I mean, there's a lot that is mysterious to us about um, the aged cop. Um, there's a lot that you know we will just, we will have to see. But at the center of the biblical witness about what we do know um, is God's promise and God's promise in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Um, if we want to really center and form congregations in what we do know about the age to come, we know that Christ is the first fruit. Um And um, but strangely, like when we when many Christians talk about heaven, it's not clear that Christ is there. You know, right. it's not clear that God is at the center. But if we actually take the celebration of the Lord's Supper um, as this. Sign. That's very sort of well-rounded biblical sign of um, the feast that is to come. I think it actually sets us on a much better track. It 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 asks us. It makes us ask much more useful questions. Um, the question becomes not like, can I play golf in heaven? Um, but um, you know, what's it going to be like to all be worshiping the lamb of God, um, including those who I don't really like that much mm. right now, those who I feel, you know, alienated toward and, and, and how can our, um, worship actually come to, um, more properly anticipate, um, this, um, feast of the age of God, uh, of the age to come, um, through keeping Christ as the center, through, um, Taking steps toward reconciliation
2: and so forth. That language of Christ the Center is so key, isn't it? I mean, when we talk about the life to come uh, in relationship to the table, to the Lord's Supper, uh, one one thing I like to remind my students of is we we tend to be so fixated with with what you know what's going to be there, you know, what will we we be doing, what will we look like, that sort of thing. But really, Scripture draws our attention to who, uh, who who is going to be there, and and that is Jesus yeah, Christ. Yeah.
0: <laughs> uh, first and foremost, what we know about the age to come is who. Yeah, <laughs> that, that's exactly yeah. right.
2: Who's going to be there? Christ is the center, and of course, you've mentioned that we can't forget this this either. Uh, not just Christ, but then fellowship, reconciliation uh, with others in Christ, uh, which yeah. which should, I think, really. Um, g- create a motivation within us that as we approach the table now, uh, we are doing so as, with others, uh, in, as a church. Uh, we are we are doing so uh, in light of of that future reality. It really should change. Really should change how we think of the supper entirely. Todd, it's been really great uh, to talk to you about. Really a a practice But then also a doctrine that Sometimes I think is taken for granted And I I would just point our readers Our listeners that is To read uh, your book On um, Remembrance, Communion, and Hope Rediscovering the Gospel of the Lord's Table I think that our listeners Will find themselves very surprised That uh, as much as this book Is about the Lord's Supper It actually is about so much more Union with Christ The role of the Holy Spirit even eschatology, as, as we've just been talking about. Todd, thank you for joining us.
0: Thanks so much for having me. It's been fun to chat.
2: The Lord's Supper is one of the most important aspects of the local church. When we think about the ways that, that really, the gifts that God has given to his church uh, to stand out in particular, uh, baptism and the Lord's Supper, we could, of course, also talk about the proclamation of the Word of God, but really, the proclamation of the word, if that is for our ears, the Lord's Supper is, uh, really appeals to our senses. It's a, an icon of the gospel, as Todd Billings has called it, and it's one that we feast upon uh, for a variety of reasons. Here, we've seen that it's not just about remembrance, but also communion and hope. Too often in the church today, we approach the supper as if it's merely remembrance, Uh, and certainly it does involve remembrance. We are to remember who Christ is, what he has done, and we are to remember that our sins are forgiven in Christ. At the same time, if we stop there, we've cut the story short. We've only uh, remembered Actually, part of what Christ has done, not only have our sins been forgiven, but we have received his perfect righteousness, and the Holy Spirit has applied what Christ has purchased so that we have new life in Jesus Christ, We're those who have been regenerated and converted and where those who have been justified, adopted, and are being sanctified, and one day we will be glorified as well. So remembrance is key, but remembrance in all of its glory, as well as communion. Not only are we to remember, but we are to have present communion. Calvin talked about this in terms of true participation, and here our doctrine of union with Christ is so relevant if we are to have true participation at the table then we need to understand that Christ is present by the Holy Spirit. We don't mean by this what, uh, say, Rome meant in its understanding of the Supper or even uh, what Luther meant in terms of a localized presence, but I think Calvin is right, and we could mention others like Spurgeon who talk about the Supper as the presence of Christ by the Holy Spirit so that we have fellowship. What does this fellowship look like? Well, it's a fellowship with Christ, so there's a vertical dimension, but then it's also a fellowship with those who are in Christ. We don't take this meal privately, but it's one that is to to be enjoyed and celebrated even in the context of the assembly, those who are gathering gathering together as the bride of Christ. This, of course, uh, should bring us to the reality that this table is a gift. It's a gift of God that we are to receive by faith. But because it's a gift, it's one that nurtures our faith, it feeds our faith. There's a covenantal dimension here. And as the Belgic Confession says so beautifully, uh, this This supper is meant to seal God's promises in us. It's a a pledge of his grace toward us, and it confirms in us the salvation he imparts. This language of sign and seal communicates all of these aspects. And then finally, not only is the supper a remembrance and communion, but it's also bringing us hope. It's hope that Christ will return. The supper reminds us that this is a reality, not just something Christ did in the past, but it's actually a present reality that will then culminate in his return one day. And we will enjoy that future banqueting table, the new heavens and new earth. And this should, in the present, this should create a longing, even an aching for that final day of the Lord when we will experience union with Christ like never before, and we will see our Savior face to face with that reality in mind as we approach the table now, shouldn't that change entirely the way we perceive and celebrate and rejoice in the Lord's Supper?
1: Now you can fill up on theology each day by visiting credomag.com. There you will find the latest issues of Credo Magazine with articles on key doctrines of the faith and regular video interviews with Dr. Matthew Barrett, where he answers some of the toughest theological questions of our day. Be sure to subscribe to Credo Podcasts to join the conversation, a conversation where doctrine matters.